Now at some point there needs to kind of come this balance where you start socially reintegrating again. And that's, that's scary. So the question is, and I asked myself this question, like, are you trying to connect out of desperation and filling that hole? Or are you feeling confident and grounded and centered in your authenticity and looking forward to sharing that with others? That's the question there. Which is it? And how can you tell? Well, like I mentioned earlier, one is like this restless, gnawing, anxiety, desperate sensation to connect, like, like this urgency. If you feel an urgency, calm down because that's that addiction cycle. Any kind of immediate urgency, that's the addiction. So calm that down and start to breathe. Like, how do you know when you're just really ready to be out there and reintegrating and sharing with people is maybe you just, you go out and you don't really intend to meet with people and you're just in that state. You're fully owning that and you're feeling confident as you and you're expressing yourself and you're just exuding that vibe. And it's like this pleasant surprise when some new person comes across your radar, maybe meet them out and about or maybe someone reconnects with you from before or somehow you just get in these right situations at the right time to meet new friends or new groups or new potential lovers and how do you tell is like it feels calm i'm meredith miller and this is the inner integration podcast where you can learn the mindsets and tools to help you heal after narcissistic abuse One of the main symptoms of stage one in the recovery process, also called the victim stage, is isolation. This could be physical and emotional. You may not feel like going out and being around people because you need some time alone to process and heal. And then when you do share with others, you might feel like they just don't get it. Or worse yet, they blame you for it. They minimize the abuse that took place. They rationalize the things that happened leaving you feeling even more alone. In stage one of the recovery process, you're working on rebuilding your foundation. Safety in places and people is very important. I'm going to read you some excerpts from my book, The Journey, a roadmap for self-healing after narcissistic abuse on this topic. Avoiding certain places and people may be necessary in the initial stages of recovery from abuse when you're feeling vulnerable. That way you don't have to face all the triggers and memories until you get stronger. Later in the recovery process, you can reclaim these spaces. During stage one, it's best to give yourself some time to heal first. Cutting ties with people who still have contact with the abuser is often necessary to protect your peace and sanity. Many of those people can become flying monkeys doing the abuser's bidding, whether consciously or unconsciously. You might find yourself quite isolated during this stage as you're realizing who the other toxic people in your life are and you're starting to cut them out. You may find that you also want a lot of alone time to work things out in your mind and feel your emotions without pretending like everything is okay. The isolation in the early stages is normal and usually necessary to support your healing. Lean into the discomfort of feeling lonely and you'll learn that it's not so bad. It's actually much easier to be alone and lonely than with people who you feel lonely around. Facing this sense of loneliness and getting comfortable with it is key to no longer accepting toxic people in your life just because you don't want to be alone. 
Figure out who of your family and friends are safe, meaning who is there to really support you and validate you versus who's there to undermine you, confuse you, blame you, and invalidate or minimize your perceptions of reality and the abuse that took place. Once you start talking about the abuse, you'll find out quickly who is supportive and who is not. People who are in denial and won't hear your truth are not part of your support network, and they're actually not safe to be around during this critical time. It's very important to understand this, or you will continually feel invalidated and or victim shamed, and this will keep you stuck in a holding pattern of seeking outside validation and feeling unable to move forward without it. It's important to start building your support structure during this early stage. The isolation from family and friends that results when others don't get it can be devastatingly lonely. This is why many of us turn to support groups online or in person during this stage in order to talk with others who had similar experiences and can validate our stories. This may be the first time you speak your truth. When you hear the stories of others who went through it, you'll realize that you're not alone and you're not crazy. It's necessary to exercise caution in all support groups, including religious and spiritual organizations, because communities like that often draw in abusive types hiding among the crowd and using the support structure to abuse vulnerable newbies. This is where your discernment of toxic or not comes in. It will take some time to develop this sense of discernment after you've lost your sense of trust. Don't beat yourself up if you don't recognize the toxicity right away. Sometimes it's very covert. When you look back, notice the moments when your intuition was telling you that something was off, but you ignored it. Now you know what to look for. Every time you interact with another toxic person, you will learn more about how they behave and how you react to it. Instead of putting yourself down, recognize the valuable lesson you learned, helping to grow your wisdom and awareness, then integrate that moving forward. It's important to hang out with people who are patient and compassionate with you during this process. If people are telling you to just get over it or just let it go, move on already, when you're in the early stages of recovery, it's going to feel really invalidating and it could cause you to beat yourself up or self-doubt more than you already are. If people are blaming and shaming you for where you're at, don't hang out with them. What you most need at this point are people in your life who believe your story and those who can show you by their example that healing is possible. Hang out with people like that and your healing will be expedited because we become like those we spent time with. While stage one requires some necessary isolation, the catalyst for fully embracing stage three is human relationships. By the time you get into stage three, the thriver stage, you enter the reconnection. Judith Herman wrote, recovery is based on the empowerment of the survivor and the creation of new connections. Recovery can take place only within the context of relationships. It cannot occur in isolation. So by stage three, you're now building a core group of supportive, loving, wonderful people in your inner circle, and you deeply value those relationships. There's a deep trust between you and those in your inner circle. You are creating a new sense of family, even though your tribe may not be related by blood. 
These people don't play games with you. They don't manipulate you. They don't use you for selfish purposes. They have your back and generally want the best for you. They care about you. They don't say things to tear you down or make you feel small so they can feel better about themselves. Instead, they celebrate your successes and encourage you on. They don't depend on you to rescue or fix them. They know they have to do that for themselves. When you're thriving, your relationships have a win-win quality and they feel uplifting rather than draining. Stage three, the thriver stage, involves a social reintegration as your new self in the community. Now in this stage, when you meet new people or hang out with your people, you don't talk a lot about the past. You're mostly focused on the present and the future that you're creating right now. Now that the past is no longer consuming you, you're able to connect with people who haven't been through narcissistic abuse. You are now forming a healthy balance of alone time and social time. Of course, the balance of this ratio depends on whether you're more of an introvert, meaning you recharge your energy alone, or you like to have small core groups of close friends, preferring to hang out one-on-one or in those small groups, or whether you're an extrovert, which means that you recharge your energy around other people. Maybe you know a lot of people and enjoy spending more time socially than alone. Stage three is also about generating a new spiritual connection with yourself and the universe. By now, the devastating sense of loneliness that followed you, maybe all your life, is no longer with you. Every now and then you might catch a glimpse of it, but it doesn't last and you know how to shift yourself out quickly. You're now potentially discovering deep in your mind, body, and soul that you are never alone because everything is singing, breathing, and dancing together, and you are part of it all. You feel a sense of peace and calm even when you're by yourself and even in situations where you find yourself surrounded by people that you don't feel really connected with. At a deep level, you sense your connection to yourself and the universe, as well as the people closest to you in your life, and this allows you to thrive like never before. Here are some of the best clips from my YouTube videos on social life and dating after narcissistic abuse. The question I had was in regards to escaping the loneliness tied to PTSD. How do you allow people back in and push away from the oh-so-much-desired isolation. It's almost painful to be social because I have faced most of it alone. I feel that facing everything alone is the only answer to my survival. So you are not alone in that. I think a lot of us felt very similar. I think the mistake that some people often make is sort of like this desperate seeking to connect and attach with other people and that can be very dangerous when the loneliness becomes so overwhelming sometimes it just pushes people out to socialize with the wrong people and they end up hanging out with people that they wouldn't want to hang out with but just because they're so lonely and they want the social contact i would really encourage people not to do that i really encourage people to spend quality alone time that is solitude not loneliness solitude is you're alone, but you're not lonely because there is a difference. The loneliness is like that craving for someone. And I remember, I think it was Dana in her her Q&A session several months ago said something like, just like you go, you don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, don't go date 
when you're lonely. And I thought that's genius because so many of us made that mistake. How many times did you make that mistake, right? Thinking, well, I'll just go out and date and I'll just meet some people and it doesn't have to be anything serious. And before you knew it, maybe the first one or two or three people that you met, now it's like a month later and you've been seeing them several times a week and you're getting into this relationship, but you're really not feeling it. And then you're suddenly realizing like, man, I'd actually rather just be alone than in this connection. So that kind of stuff can happen if you try to push it too quickly. It is very healthy to spend some alone time. Now the question that this young woman asked is a question that I've had very similar thoughts about myself and I've also heard other people say where you get to that point where it's hard to trust other people and it's for a reason, right? Because most of the people that you have trusted proved to be untrustworthy. So you learned not to extend that trust, not to create those immediate attachments with people because you wanna give them some time to see who they are before you're getting in too deeply with them. She says, how do you allow people back in and push away from that oh so much desired isolation. If you're feeling that strong desire for isolation, for the solitude, maybe that's a sign you just need some time in solitude and you're not really ready yet to meet a lot of people. When you start to feel the desire to have more social connections, that's when you wanna to start to experiment more. It's really important to have a support network through this. They may not be your friends. They may not be people that you know in real life. Maybe you found a support group or a 12-step program or something like that where there's awesome people that you really resonate with and you go there once or a few times a week and that's like your saving grace. Or maybe you live in the middle of nowhere or you just haven't found those local groups to connect with and so you find the online support networks, other people who have been through this kind of abuse. When you have communication online, line with them that is really important to the healing process is like other people who get it who know what you've been through that support network but when it comes to like just the social life in general you gotta listen to your intuition maybe you start getting out there a little more and being a little social and you know you're at a bar or you're at a party or wherever and you're looking around the room and everybody else seems to be having a really good time and you're just not feeling it you're like this is just not my crowd I don't really like to drink alcohol. I don't like the bar scene. I don't like all this superficial bullshit conversation. This just isn't vibing with me. And so I would actually rather be home in sweatpants right now, snuggled up with my dog, focusing on my passion and my purpose, and or even just watching some kind of series that I really enjoy. And I enjoy that so much more than being out in some social environment that I'm not really vibing with. Maybe you're kind of similar. Maybe you're an introvert too. I'm an introvert. So I get recharged spending time alone. Maybe you're also an introvert. Maybe you get most recharged and healed and all that spending time alone. Extroverts like to be around a lot of other people with a lot of excitement and energy going on. That's how they get charged and uplifted. If you're an introvert, how do you know that when you go out into social situations, you can only do that for so many hours and days at a time. And then it's like you are craving that alone time. That's when you know you're an introvert. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to change yourself. That's who you are. You're more internally directed versus looking for that external stimulation. So be there for yourself and, and, and find the things 
things that you love to do to focus on your passion and your purpose and when you feel the drive to connect a little more maybe something some way to start is networking events I like to do that sometimes they do meet at bars which is not my favorite scene but I'm willing to do it for an hour hour and a half maybe two hours once or twice a month just to connect with some new people have a few conversations see if anything connects business-wise or personally and if not then if not but the awesome thing too is like you're not stuck anywhere it's like this open house kind of environment you show up between these hours you maybe grab a drink or not and walk around and just have little conversations with people and sometimes people keep those conversations real short a couple minutes because there's a lot of people to meet and every now and then you meet someone that you really vibe with and you end up talking for 10 15 20 minutes and you exchange contact information and you end up having some kind of professional or personal relationship outside of there so anything can happen and i think the awesome thing about those networking events is people are generally of good quality there because they're looking to better themselves, they're looking to improve their career, they're looking to improve their network, they're trying to create rapport and good relationships with people. Of course, you're going to find assholes everywhere. But generally in that sense, like when people are being very honest and open about who they are, they're introducing themselves, people aren't really going to be jerks in that situation unless they want everybody to know who they are. So chances are you're not going to be meeting a lot of jerks in that kind of situation. It's going to be very different than just going to a random bar and meeting random people who could be telling you anything, making up any story about who they are, thinking that they'll never see you again or they'll never be like social proof or accountability or anything like that. So I do like the networking events for that reason. I would I would look online, look on Facebook, you know, see what events are in your local area. I mean, especially, I know this young woman is an entrepreneur. You're starting your own business. You're starting this passion and this purpose. You definitely want to connect with people who are doing other things like that because you never know who you're going to meet. You know, maybe you meet the next person who's going to connect the next thing to this and that or someone who's aligned with your business mission and, and whatnot. So awesome things can happen and you can also overcome some of the social anxiety. You didn't say that term here, but when you said it's almost painful to be social, what I feel is that there might be some social anxiety there. I recognize I had plenty of that. When you grow up in a narcissistically abusive family, dynamic you have social awkwardness like it's just normal that you do because of the awkwardness of that whole situation and how every family gathering or social gathering was awkward there was always this pretensing and you had to pretend that everything was okay and you had to pretend to be someone that you weren't and so then you go out in public and then you meet people and then you're instantly triggered back to that childhood thing of okay gotta pretend this and that and gotta and you can't really be yourself and all of this so to overcome the social anxiety what i've found is that these networking events are great because it's like every the expectation is that you just walk up to people and strike up a conversation so it's not nearly as awkward as going out to some other random place or even just a random bar and trying to talk to people who are in little isolated groups and may or may not be interested in talking or may or may not think that you're hitting on them just because you want to have a conversation so the networking events are really safe 
haven, I feel, for practicing the social connections and getting over that anxiety. And sometimes you actually have to present yourself. Maybe they give you 30 seconds, a microphone. Hey, I'm so-and-so and this is what I do and this is who I help. So if you wanna to talk to me, be sure to come up to me and talk to me today. That kind of thing. So you're really putting yourself out there and in a, in a very safe container where everybody is in the same boat. Everybody has to do it. So you're not alone, you're not put on the spot and it's not this awkward kind of thing. And you never know what will come of it. Maybe nothing does. Maybe you go to several of these events and you never really meet people that you really vibe with, but what you notice is that you're getting a lot more comfortable and confident just getting out there and talking to people. And that's really helpful because especially if you're an entrepreneur, that's key to you thriving in your business is how well you're able to talk with people and connect with other people. And the other thing too, you said, you feel that facing everything alone is the only answer to your survival. You learn that because of betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. Every time you formed an attachment with someone, they betrayed that you and that attachment. So you've learned that to survive, you can only count on yourself. And I can really relate to that. And especially in terms of like the business and whatnot, you know, oftentimes you'll meet abusive people who come in like trying to make themselves helpful for your business and telling you, you gotta do this and you gotta do that or whatever. And, and it's like, they didn't do it. Like, it's not like they're an entrepreneur and they created a business like yours and they're giving you advice that like a mentor or someone who's two to 10 steps ahead of you is giving you. No, that's the situation of where you didn't even ask for directions, but it's like someone is giving you directions to a place they've never been with. You're gonna get lost. That's bad advice. Don't listen to those people. Don't listen to the people who, for example, you start to have some level of success and then this person sends you a message. Maybe you had some awesome breakout with something and then you get a message from someone. It's awesome that you did that and everything, but just remember, you only need a little bit amount of money to get by and, and nothing more and, and don't dream bigger. <laughs> and they start to make you feel small and they don't want to see you do well. Tune all of that out. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. It's better to be alone than to allow any of that into your reality. You are responsible for your reality. No one else but you is responsible for your reality. If you don't like your reality, you have to change it. You learned that having, inviting people in was very dangerous because they would betray you. It's smart to have boundaries. It's really smart to do most of that on your own until you're very confident with someone over a period of time that they're revealing their character to you and they're trustworthy and something is gonna work with them, with your business or even personal life. But you're right to have caution there. No, and not just to let anyone in because you've learned. You've learned to have boundaries now to protect yourself from abusive, manipulative, exploitative people. I found it's important to get comfortable with the solid and that is something that's hard for a lot of people, probably a lot harder for extroverts to spend alone time, to spend time in solitude because extroverts feel so recharged when they're around other people. So for those of you who are extroverts, and you're feeling that loneliness, spend time in solitude. That's something you don't normally do. That's like those of us who are introverts practicing the social connections. That's really uncomfortable and awkward for us. For you, it might be just as awkward to spend alone time at home. So lean into that discomfort a little bit, you know, block off some time, you know, maybe Friday nights now are dedicated to you. You hang out with you alone at home, doing whatever it is you want, either working on your passion and purpose, painting your toenails, taking a bath, watching a series on TV, snuggling with your dog, cooking, whatever. 
whatever it is that you enjoy doing, make that time for yourself and get used to that so that you know who you are and you don't lose your sense of self in a relationship again. That's the whole point of spending that alone time is to get to know yourself so that you can be authentic, so that you can be your true self, so that you know what your values are, what your desires are, what you're looking for in life. That way when you do go out, it's very clear, very quickly, your discernment tells you, no, that's not working. Yeah, this feels awesome. Nope, that's not working. Nope, that's not working. Hey, this feels good over here. And that starts to become a lot easier. The more you know yourself, the more you spend alone time, and the more you embrace that solitude. So I'm sending you a big hug because I know that's not easy, and I know it's just, it's really hard. I think probably one of the hardest struggles for those of us who have survived abuse is feeling so alone feeling so, so alone. So if you don't have the social connections and you feel like spending a lot of alone time, but you still want the support of a support network, I would look on the online support networks. You can go in and out however little as much as you want and still feel and remember you're not alone. There's so many other people who went through this. There's so many other people who understand you. And there's so many other people who are there if you want to share something with them. I often hear survivors have issues staying by themselves after the abuse and avoid jumping right into another abusive relationship. I have the opposite problem, especially since I've been educating myself about what I've been through. I can't form friendships or relationships. I even struggle with maintaining good interactions with my nearest family because I'm terrified of getting hurt again. It has been like this for a while now and it's starting to get heavy on me. How can I connect with people and allow myself to love someone else? Kisses from Italy. So this is a great question. I think it's a question a lot of people start asking after a period of time, time of being apart from these relationships. So yes, a lot of people try to fill the loneliness with serial relationships or dating. Just there's like this gnawing sense of restlessness. So they just they just get out there just to meet people. And then what happens is that gnawing anxiety and restlessness convinces them that it's okay, that whatever shows up shows up and they're gonna settle for that and they're just gonna keep seeing these people or hanging out with these people, whether they're friends or dates or whatever. But if it doesn't feel entirely good, sometimes in the early stages, people can just get into this rut of just going out to hang out with people to mask that sense of loneliness. Of course, there's no loneliness in the world more devastating than being surrounded by people or being in a friendship or in a relationship and feeling so alone. That's the worst kind. So it's important to allow for that space for healing for a while. Embracing the solitude, getting to know yourself, revealing more of your authenticity, revealing more of your own purpose, figuring out what you really want in life, what your dreams are, not someone else's dreams, but your dreams. Maybe you've always been living someone else's dreams, your mom's dream or your dad's dream or society's dream or your ex's dream for you, but what's your dream? And until you're really clear about that, yeah, it could be dangerous to get out there. It could be really complicated, but then it's like at some point along the lines, at some point of figuring these things out and working on yourself and working on the self-care, really coming to know who you are, really feeling comfortable expressing that, knowing what you want, knowing and feeling and living that sense of purpose in every moment. When you're at that place, being very clear about what your dreams are and being very clear about not settling for anything else and not compromising your values and dreams, then at some point there needs to kind of come this balance where you start 
socially reintegrating again. And that's, that's scary. So the question is, and I, and I asked myself this question, like, are you trying to connect out of desperation and filling that hole? Or are you feeling confident and grounded and centered in your authenticity and looking forward to sharing that with others? That's the question there. Which is it? And how can you tell? Well, like I mentioned earlier, one is like this restless, gnawing, anxiety, desperate sensation to connect, like like this urgency. If you feel an urgency, calm down because that's that addiction cycle. Any kind of immediate urgency, that's the addiction. So calm that down and start to breathe. Like, how do you know when you're just really ready to be out there and reintegrating and sharing with people is maybe you just, you go out and you don't really intend to meet with people and you're just in that state. You're fully owning that and you're feeling confident as you and you're expressing yourself and you're just exuding that vibe. And it's like this pleasant surprise when some new person comes across your radar. Maybe you meet them out and about or maybe someone reconnects with you from before or somehow you just get in these right situations at the right time to meet new friends or new groups or new potential lovers and how do you tell is like it feels calm I mean, there's the butterflies and the excitement of meeting new people and all of that, but there's a calmness to it and sort of this pleasant knowing versus this restless urgency and anxiety that's gnawing at you just to fill that hole. So my suggestions are to take it slow and really listen to how you feel. That is your main barometer. If you've been listening to my channel for a while, you know that's what I preach over and over again because of the wound to the self-trust that takes place in PTSD that takes place in abuse. You've lost trust. You've lost trust in yourself. You've lost trust in other people. You've lost trust in the universe and God because how can such a thing happen in this world if God really loved you? This universe really wanted the good for you. We all go through these sorts of moments after the abuse and after the PTSD. So it's important to take things slow and redevelop that and really feel. How do you feel? Tune into that. That's your barometer. If something doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. If you're out there too early out and about and trying to meet people, you're probably still meeting jerks. Like if all you're meeting are all these narcissistic people, you still have a lot of work to do. Not that I'm saying you're never going to meet one again. You'll definitely meet them. But if you just feel like all you meet and all you connect with are narcissistic something on that cluster B spectrum individuals, then you still have a lot of healing to do. So if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Don't jump into something. Don't accept something. Don't settle for something that doesn't feel right just because you're lonely. The right people will show up when it's the right timing. One of my clients asked me a couple weeks ago, she was trying to get back out and dating after taking some time off after an abusive relationship. And she was still disappointed in the people that she was meeting. She was still seeing the same patterns, you know, different people, slightly different, but the same basic textbook patterns. And she asked me, so how's that working out for you? <laughs> like, well, haven't met anybody other than the friendships that I have and developing those. And that's been amazing. And I feel okay with that. Like, I, I don't feel like I have to be out about and I don't have myself on any kinds of online dating profiles because I just don't want to be in that space. I realize like that's not the space for me to meet someone. That's the space for me to meet a lot of narcissistic individuals that I don't want to actually have anything to do with. And so not going that direction. Like Dana from Thrive After Abuse and months ago I heard her say just like you don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, don't go date when you're lonely. 
And that is so true. I mean, that just hit me so hard. She's totally right. Don't go out and just date or just try to meet new friends when you're lonely. That vibe is going to exude out from you. It's like this desperation and this loneliness. People are going to tune into that. And either they're going to be healthy people or going to be totally turned off by that because you don't appear to be healthy and you appear to be desperate. Or they're going to be narcissistic individuals who are going to see that and latch right onto that because that looks like a perfect target. When you are ready... You will meet people, but not until you're ready. And the craziest thing is that the right people could be right in front of you. Literally, they could be right in front of you. They could be at your work. They could be near where you live. They could be some person you have some kind of contact with. Like they could literally be right there in your life and you don't see them because you're not ready. They could be right there because you have some kind of blinders on, either from the past or from what you think it's supposed to look like, what you think friendship needs to look like, or what you think a lover needs to look like and you just can't see them. You can't see them because of your blinders and your filters. That's also a possibility. That can also happen too, which is why it's really important to take inventory on those things. Like we all have blind spots in life. There's always something that we're not seeing. So constantly becoming more and more aware of that and always taking inventory of the people who are in your life. What value do those people bring to your life? What impact do they bring to your life? And what value and impact do you bring to theirs? So rebuilding the trust starts with self-trust. You talk about you don't know who to trust and, and who, who you're meeting and all this as you're getting back out there. It all starts with you because if you don't trust yourself, how do you know who to trust? What's going to happen when you start meeting a new friend or a new date and you get to that moment where you're like, okay, either I trust the feeling I have or I trust the thing that they're saying. How do you know what to trust if you don't trust yourself? If you don't know when you trust yourself and when you're lying to yourself. So start by listening to your body. Because by the way, denial is a form of lying to yourself. We were all lying to ourselves and we were in the denial. We wanted to believe the lie. The lie was much more beautiful than the reality. The reality was ugly. We didn't want to see that truth. So you got to start listening to your body, listening to your gut feeling. Your body doesn't lie. Your mind can lie. Your mind can come up with all kinds of illusions and doubts. And so can your heart. Your heart can lie. It can get caught up in fantasy and illusion and don't know what's real and what's not. But your body always tells you the truth. That's the primal level of intuition. There's many layers of intuition. The other's too complicated to start for right now. Start with the body. When you have zero trust in yourself, you don't know how to trust your mind, you don't know how to trust your heart, listen to your body, trust your body, trust that gut feeling, your body doesn't lie. So listen to that when you're out and about with people, when you're hanging out with friends, like one of, you probably heard these in my videos too, one of the main signals that you're with a toxic person. Now, it doesn't even have to be on the cluster B spectrum. This could just be a drama queen, that sort of stuff. Significantly less amount of manipulation, but still, if you are hanging out with somebody and you feel exhausted, normally when you hang out with people, you should feel like uplifted and happy and excited and it feels great and time flies. But if you're just like, the clock is ticking and you feel exhausted during and afterward, that's a bad sign. That's a sign that person is sucking away a lot of your energy. It also means you don't have boundaries because your boundaries are not stopping that process. That's one way that your body tells you things aren't okay. Maybe your body shuts down. Maybe you're dating somebody and they're trying to engage you physically and maybe even it was okay like earlier, but now suddenly your body is just shutting down. It's because 
your body is telling you something. Something's not okay. Your body doesn't want to open to that person. Why not? Ask those questions. Whatever you're feeling in your body, what is that? What are you feeling? If you feel like you don't have a good connection between the mind and body like that, check out one of the new trainings that I created. It's just a mini training and it's called Psychosomatic awareness and reintegration and there's a mini lesson and then a guided visualization and it's going to guide you into this way of reconnecting with your body and paying attention to the messages that your body is sending you reconnecting that whole continuum of body mind spirit really becoming aware of that and that's like the primal way of getting in touch with your intuition and rebuilding that sense of self-trust. When you're starting from zero and you just don't know what to trust anymore, it's almost like you have to rely on something tangible. That's why the body is amazing. Your body is tangible. It's not some ethereal idea or energy. Your body is real and it's gonna send you a message. And the more in tune you are with that, the more connected you're gonna be with your intuition, with your sense of self-trust. If you're out and about and meeting people and you just feel like in social situations or out in public, you always feel like you're in danger. Like maybe your hypervigilance is 10x. When you're at a party or a gathering or at the grocery store, just out and about, and you just always feel like you're in danger, that's a sign that you're still locked in the past, that that's still some heavy PTSD. PTSD just means you're locked in the past. Your subconscious is locked in the past. It's still reliving the past because you haven't processed it in order to move through it. You haven't felt it in order to heal it. So if you're out there and you just feel like this restless anxiety, fear, danger, hypervigilance, keep working on self-care, especially the breathing, the mindfulness, and presence. Start with the most basics. If you get out and about and the panic attack comes on, some people might have the panic, a heat wave. It's like maybe like a hot flash that comes over your body and you're just sweating and panicking and you just want to strip your clothes off and like... You just can't get your breath or whatever. You got to get everything off your neck. Maybe that's kind of a panic attack that you have. Start breathing. Take a big exhale. Start breathing. Maybe for you, the panic is more like cold. I've had these before too. Usually when it's colder outside, but it'll feel like from one moment to the next, all the heat was just sucked out of my body and the pain of the coldness going into the bones and just this like shivering paralysis of cold and just can't stop shivering and like your body contracts maybe even into like a fetal position just desperately trying to get warm that's another form of panic attack these sorts of things can happen if you're out and about and you're not feeling comfortable you're feeling unsafe go to the breathing start breathing if you're feeling cold you want to take quick breaths like the breath of fire and yoga like that kind of breath because that's invigorating it's going to get a lot of heat going in your body if you're feeling too hot you need to take slow long breaths because that's going to calm everything down it's going to cool things down it's going to bring you back to the present moment in mindfulness and if you're still having a lot of flashbacks and a lot of negative self-talk and you're going to notice that i mean maybe you don't notice it as much when you're alone though the flashbacks and all that you can just be plaguing your reality just constant your inner dialogue is constant constantly reviewing the past and putting you down and punishing and doubting and all this. And sometimes we're just not aware of that, even when we're alone. Sometimes it's more 
suddenly apparent when you're out with other people. Sometimes it's like your inner dialogue becomes so loud when you're with other people, you notice it more than maybe if you're at home and dissociating or just zoning out, not really paying attention. And maybe you notice it more when you're in social situations. If you're still having a lot of negative self-talk and or flashbacks, I highly recommend checking out my training on reprogramming the flashbacks and self-talk. That I believe is one of the most powerful parts of the healing work after the abuse and after the PTSD, especially if you grew up in a family like that because you grew up in a negativity paradigm. If you grew up in a family with narcissistic abuse, you're going to feel social anxiety as an adult. There's an awkwardness to you. Like I'll admit that when I'm out and about, I, I feel it. Like I don't feel as awkward and I'm alone. And then I go out and about and I notice how my body tenses more and just how much more awkward it is. Like it, there's still an awkwardness to it, even though I feel like it's significantly easier to relate to people and talk to people nowadays than in the past. But there's an enormous amount of that social anxiety and awkwardness to overcome because things were fucking awkward when you were growing up. Everything was weird and awkward. Either there was way too much attention focused on you from like, say, the whole family gathering, or there wasn't any at all, or it was back and forth, went up and down, and you didn't know if the attention you were going to get was going to be an idealization. Oh, so-and-so, so amazing and so proud or some kind of cruelty, abuse, put down, that sort of thing. So naturally, when you go out and about to meet people, you're afraid that the same thing will happen. You don't know, are you going to receive kindness or are you going to receive cruelty? What is it going to be? You're not really sure what to expect. So that could be really unnerving. And it's really important to upgrade that self-talk, to upgrade your reality paradigm from that negativity paradigm, from the self-doubt, from the awkwardness, and all of that from childhood into a new paradigm of possibility and more positive ways of looking at the world and interacting with the world. And this piece will help you so much to rebuild your self-esteem because your self-esteem comes by your interactions with the universe and people around you, with the world around you. As you take action, what is the response from people in the world around you? When that response is good, your self-esteem is high. When that response is low, your self-esteem is low, but it's not dependent on the outside world. The outside world is just responding to your inside world. So when your inner world, your inner paradigm is more positive, it's more based on possibility and openness and what's going to happen versus it's all negative and it's all this and it's all that. It's a very different way that you interact with the world around you. Very, very different way that the world responds to you because you are creating reality and reality is creating you. So one of the main questions, one of the main challenges here for social social life after abuse, after a period of time of healing, ask yourself the question, can you trust yourself to remain in authenticity with yourself, with your self-expression and in alignment and integrity with your values? Can you trust yourself to maintain in that authenticity and alignment when you're with other people? Because if not, maybe you can't feel at ease around them. Maybe you find yourself getting into situations with people where you're trading in your authenticity for acceptance. Don't ever trade in your authenticity for acceptance. As recovering codependents, we are too willing to do this because of the past. We've been told you had to give up who you are, your sense of authenticity, your thoughts, your feelings, your needs, your perceptions 
perceptions of reality, your desires and hopes for the future, all of that wasn't allowed in order for you to fit in, in order for you to get any sense of conditional love. You had to compromise all of that authenticity in order to get that acceptance. But now as adults, we can make different decisions. We don't have to do that. We don't have to sacrifice our authenticity. We can stay in that authenticity and wait for the right groups, wait for the right communities and tribes. You will find your community and tribes of people who share common values with you. And that's another question. Do you know what your values are? Do you really know what your core values are? Because if you don't know what those are and you can't really define those, really articulate them to yourself, then how do you know what you're looking for in community and tribe, in a mate, in a friend? How do you know what to find? Make sure that they have similar core values. And maybe those core values are very, very different than your family of origin. Very different and probably are. What you're actually looking for in life versus where you've come from. Why you shouldn't date when you're lonely. Now, this is something I brought up a little bit here and there in some videos, but I haven't really dedicated a whole video to this topic, and it is so important, so I really want to put it out there. Now, this topic about dating after you get out of an abusive situation, usually by an intimate partner, the tough topic then is, okay, so when do you get back out there? And the common mistake is that people get back out into dating too soon. They might do this because they want to forget their ex or they're feeling really lonely, and it it is so important not to date when you're feeling lonely. Today, I'm going to tell you how it goes from one to done, meaning one to back in the abuse cycle again, or at the very least, lowering your value and settling for less than what you're worth, which leads you into more negative cycles. And this can really apply to meeting new friends as well. So keep that in mind, because oftentimes once you wake up to this pattern of narcissistic abuse, you start getting all the toxic people out of your life. You realize just how many toxic people were in your life, maybe even family members. You end up feeling really alone and you want to meet new people in your life. So number one, okay, and this is going to go in order from one to five. So number one is when you're lonely, people sense that unconsciously and you will be perceived as low value. Now you might think you're hiding that, but you're probably revealing red flags of desperation to fill the loneliness. Now I don't mean red flags of narcissism. I mean red flags of desperation to feel the loneliness. Maybe you're acting needy or maybe you're just too quick to get involved in someone and accept their behavior when they start to test you and see how much you're willing to put up with. People sense that at an unconscious level and then you're perceived as not worthy. Number two, you're going to be tempted to drop your standards in order to have company, in order to avoid your fear of loneliness. Number three is you will likely then attract predators like sharks to blood or at the very least some leeches and lazy lions who don't make an effort or they're emotionally unavailable or they're just not really doing much in life and either they expect you to do for them or they shame you for doing well for yourself or they show you that you don't matter in some way. They don't make time or they just don't treat you in that kind of way because those people just can't appreciate you and your value. Then the step four is your self-worth plummets. You're going to feel even worse about yourself. You're going to accept even less from others. You're going to accept less effort, less value, less investment. And by number five, you feel stuck. You feel a sense of inertia to get back out and be alone again. 
Now, this is one of the reasons why people stay in abusive or subpar situations because they feel worthless. They have thoughts like, no one else will love me. I'm not good enough to deserve better or I'm not good enough to make it on my own. So you can see how it goes from one to done real quick. That's the danger of getting back out there when you're lonely. Here's the thing. The fear of loneliness is actually much worse than the loneliness itself. That fear is actually not outside yourself in the world. It's inside you. It's already inside the gates. If you feel the pathological loneliness caused by the parental abuse since childhood, maybe one of your parents was a narcissistic character, recognize that was programmed into you. It was a wound that was programmed into you and it's not your fault, but you are the only one who can change it. You can change it. You can only conquer the fear of loneliness by facing it with courage, the courage to be alone and be okay with that. Courage is when you're scared shitless, but your heart says, do it anyways. There are much worse alternatives to loneliness. You can get into another abusive situation. You can simply settle for less than what you're worth in this non-passionate, non-exciting, not really worthy relationship, then you're feeling more alone around others than when you're actually alone. You ever had that situation when you're out and about or you just go out or you go out with some group after work maybe or just some people that you met and you're hanging out with them and you just kind of wish you were at home alone because either you're not really on that level or whatever they're talking about doesn't really interest you or it feels superficial or it feels like they just don't really value you. You're just not connecting. Now, personally, I would much rather be alone till the day I die than to accept either of those alternatives again. You can make the best use of your loneliness by working on yourself, healing, getting a new hobby, learning something new. You can take a class. You can just learn stuff online. Nowadays, even if you don't have money, you can go online. You can learn so many things, either on YouTube, websites, online courses. You can even find a new series to watch on Netflix. You can catch up with friends that maybe you haven't seen in a while if you have friends in your life. You can get online, you can read books, you can learn everything there is about dating and relationships. That's really important after you get out of these destructive relationships to learn what is healthy dating? What are healthy relationships? What would that look like? What kind of behavior should you be exhibiting to show others that you have value? So how do you know you're ready to date again? You're going to feel like you don't need someone. It would be nice to hang out with people, to have friends, or to date, but you don't need that person. There's a difference between wanting to engage with people and needing people. Another thing is you trust yourself. That means you trust yourself to know the red flags. You trust yourself to know if this is okay for you, if it's not okay for you, and you're very clear on your self-worth. Then it's okay to put yourself out there again. So when you do put yourself out there again, you want to practice showing your standards, setting boundaries, listening to your intuition, not being afraid to say no when it doesn't feel right. You're not willing to compromise your well-being again, your self-worth again for anything. And until your standards are clear and you're strong enough to enforce them, then you're not ready to date or enlist new friends. So these are my recommendations. Let me know in the comments if you put yourself back out there again, how that's going, what you're learning, how you're setting new standards, what you're learning about yourself in these interactions with others. 
Avoiding codependency, the fixer mode. One of the common traps of codependency, there, there's two of them that I see. The first one is the people pleasing. To me, that's what codependency is primarily about. It's about people pleasing in order to get a sense of approval from others. The second trap is trying to fix and heal other people who have problems. And that's the one that I'm going to focus on. So this is actually quite dangerous. It kind of has this noble air, helping, fixing, healing people. And there's a time and space for all that and professional jobs and whatnot. But when you're talking about a relationship, when you enter into a relationship with someone who has issues like alcoholism, addiction, narcissism, and you get in there and you try to help them and fix their problems, what happens is it's actually disrespectful to the other person who may not want to change at all. And it's their sole responsibility to change. It's not your responsibility. Even though you may know better, even though you may see the error of their ways and how they could have a much better life if they were to change this or that. That's not your responsibility. And trying to get someone to make changes in their life when they don't want to change is actually disrespectful. So how many of you fell into that trap before and then got yourself into a relationship with an alcoholic, an addict, a narcissist, another toxic person who, despite all of your efforts, that person never changed. That person never healed. They never quit that bad habit. Habit, they never stop abusing or manipulating or treating other people poorly. So if you got into that, then recognize the behavioral patterns that got you in there. Now, of course, the abuse, the manipulation, none of that is your fault. Their alcoholism, their addiction to drugs or narcissistic supply, none of that is your fault. But what I'm saying is if you want to take some responsibility for yourself so that you can empower yourself and not get into one of those situations again, that's the information I'm sharing here so that you can take care of your behaviors so that you don't then end up attracting that or getting involved in that again. So from now on, here's my main advice. From now on, every person that you meet, whether it's dating, friendships, co-workers, potential business contacts, look at that person that you meet and imagine that they are never going to change. Look at that person right here and right now and ask yourself two years from now, do you want that person in your life? Imagine they never change a thing. They're the same person two years from now that they are right now. Do you still want that person in your life? Do you even want to spend 10 minutes with that person? Knowing that they will never change. Let's just make that assumption. They will never change. And maybe some people do. I'm going to get into that in a minute. But just imagine that, that person is never going to change. So stop looking at them with those goggles of what you want to see or what you hope to see in the future. Imagine they're just not going to change. Do you still want to hang out with them? That's the question. And if not, then your answer is don't waste your time and energy. Just don't waste your time and energy. If the person ends up changing down the road, maybe you end up running into them and now they're living a different life and they tell you about their changes and that's great, but you don't know that that's gonna happen. So to save yourself a lot of energy and time investment and then getting into another toxic relationship, don't waste your time. The reality is that people can change. We can all change. It's a human characteristic, quality, innate possibility that we can all change, but the reality is that many people, maybe even most people, don't change. And when we're talking about a narcissist, a really toxic person, they don't change. I have never once in my personal life or my professional life heard of one narcissist, psychopath, sociopath who has ever changed. Not 
one. I've heard of quite a few of them who put on a really good show, who said all the right words, who pretended to change for a little while, but it always ends up coming up that nothing changed. They go back to the same behaviors. It was all a show. Maybe it lasted a day, a week, a couple months, maybe even a couple years, but they end up just being that same person again. And, and this became really obvious to me after the earthquake and mentioned in the last video that people's true colors really come out after a crisis. And I saw it immediately. You know, Venus and I had to evacuate an hour after the earthquake happened. We went to the park where there were a lot of other people who were displaced from their homes. And we walked around for a while until I found half of a bench that was empty. And it was an older couple. They obviously were affluent and they were huddled together talking. They were obviously evacuated as well. And I said to them in Spanish, you know, would it be okay if I sat down over here? And of course I had Venus with me. And they were like, oh, and the woman said to me in Spanish, but he doesn't like dogs. And I just looked at her and I turned around and walked away because it wasn't even worth protesting. You got displaced from your home. There's all these other people displaced. We just went through this massive trauma like an hour before. You don't have to like dogs. I'm not trying to tell you you gotta like dogs, but like you can't share the bench with a person who has a dog. Like that person never gonna change. If that didn't shake them up, no chance. Me having any sort of conversation, not even worth it. Like what am I gonna do? Try to educate them on the right thing to do? No. I'm not going to waste my time and energy. I'm going to move on to where I'm wanted, to where I'm appreciated, to where it's nice to be around other people. The other situation that I saw was my Airbnb host. Everything was great until the earthquake hit. Immediately took a picture of all the damage. You've seen my previous videos. You saw that giant mirror in the background. That mirror is taller than me. It's probably like six feet tall. That mirror went crashing down and luckily Venus and I were on the other side of the apartment when the earthquake happened because that would have killed her. It probably could have killed me or hurt me. And, and it wasn't in any way, shape or form attached to the wall, number one, which it has to be. If you have a bookshelf and a mirror, anything like this in a seismic zone, you should secure that sort of thing. And her response was, oh, wow, wow. Looking at all the damage, are you going to be okay to clean up the glass? Then moving forward, I didn't realize how bad the earthquake was immediately. There was damage in the apartment, but then an hour later we had to evacuate because of the fissures in the building and whatnot. There was no water. There was no no gas, there was no electricity for many days. And I told her that I had evacuated because of what happened. And for all she knew, I was in the street. Right now, I get it. It's not her legal responsibility. She doesn't owe me anything. It was mother nature that created the earthquake. But not once did she offer me a shower or a sofa. And she lives in the really posh part of town. And on top of that, she couldn't even bother herself to call the building and get updates. And I was illegally there, which she told me after I made my reservation that they're not allowed to do Airbnb so you know don't tell anybody that really puts the guests in an awkward situation particularly when the crisis hits they don't know me there she gave me like an email address that I could write to them and ask them for updates which of course they didn't give to me because I don't belong there she couldn't even bother herself to get information and then at the very end of the stay like I the whole last week there I paid and didn't stay there I ended up staying with a friend which I was very very blessed to have and in the very end she tells me oh I'm just not going to be able to meet you which is fine often you don't meet Airbnb owners because you know I've just been working so hard at the rescue dog mission and I just don't have time for anything else. That kind of narcissist is never going to change. If that kind of event didn't shake her up, if the fact that she had a guest there and the mirror falling and the evacuation, like none of that changed her perspective whatsoever.
whatsoever. She was still going with that narcissistic game. So the reality is don't hang out with people like that. I didn't want to hang out with them. I didn't want to teach them the wrong of their ways and encourage them to do the right thing because those people don't do the right thing. You're just going to waste your time and energy. You might as well just move on. So be grateful when people show you who they really are. Be grateful. No matter how much of an asshole they are, be grateful that that person is showing you who they are so that you can take the responsibility of getting out of there, of walking away from them and not wasting your time and energy around that person or trying to help that person to change. I have a couple more suggestions here for you around this idea of change and helping people to change. The first is that humans are afraid of change. We're all afraid of change. I'm afraid of change too. I'm actively working on transforming myself. I'm still afraid of change. When change happens, it's scary. It's also exciting in some ways, but it's really scary looking at the unknown and what's going to happen. It's uncomfortable. And the reality though, is that the exceptional people are the ones who are actively working on changing themselves for the better, who have the self-awareness to recognize their shit and the humility to change it. Those are the exceptional ones. Those are the keepers. Those are the friends that are the keepers. Those are the people that you're dating and you see those qualities of self-awareness and the humility to make changes to better themselves, that's a keeper. So start seeing people for who they really are. Stop the fantasy of the potential, the illusion of the hope for change. Stop all of that and see the person for who they are right here, right now, and respect their choice to be who they are. Whether it's wrong or right, they have the choice to be who they are. It's not on us to try to change that person to even try to encourage them to do something different if they don't want to. Respect the fact that they are who they are. Don't hang out with them if you don't like them. Shine your light. It's important to shine your light. And what happens is as we each shine our light in that illumination, other people have the opportunity to see new things about themselves, to make changes in their lives that maybe it hadn't occurred to them before, but maybe not. Maybe they don't change at all. Don't shine your light for the purpose of making someone else change, shine your light because you wanna shine your light. And maybe just maybe the people around you see themselves and something new in themselves. Live with other people, live in community with other people, live, share space with other people, observe how they cook, how they eat, how they live, because you're gonna learn so much. You're gonna observe the way other people live, especially from other cultures, but even in your own culture. Everybody has different customs. We all grew up in different families and households and we all have our own personalities and you don't have to be exactly like other people, but just notice the way they do things. And notice, oh, that's really interesting. Like maybe I want to do this that way. And you can learn some really wonderful stuff. And the final advice that I have is don't take on the responsibility of other people. Do not try to change them. Instead, work on you. We all have work to do at home. That's the reality. So focus on you. Get yourself out of the situation with somebody that you don't like, that you don't want to hang out with, that they're just not respectful to you, that you just can't live with the way they are right now. If they don't change, walk away away from them. Don't hang out with those people and really honor the people in your life who have that self-awareness to notice their stuff and who have the humility to change themselves, to admit that they need to change and then to go ahead and start making those changes actively. Those are the keepers. Those are the people that you want to keep in your life. Show your standards 
to avoid getting involved with someone who doesn't respect you. Some fears that I often hear from my clients, which I had as well, is like one of the main fears they have after getting out of the relationship, they start to heal and they're considering getting back out there and starting to date. And they're like, but you know, what if I meet another narcissist? What if I meet another psychopath, another sociopath? What if I don't realize it at first? What if they're really covert and it's hard to see? So I made this mistake as well by approaching it from that direction. One, coming from that fear and two, looking for the signs of those disorders versus going to a really basic parameter, which I'm going to teach you about today to avoid getting all confused by the fears and the panic from the past and to avoid getting too wrapped up in looking for like the specific criteria for narcissists, psychopaths, etc. Starting with the very, very basic criteria of respect. So the bottom line is that if a person doesn't respect you, you shouldn't keep dating them. It should end at date one if they even make it that far. If you realize that there's already those little subtle signs of disrespect, again, you're not looking for personality disorder signs. You're simply gauging by the parameter of respect. So here's the thing. Your standards are your boundaries and you need to have the self-worth to know what your standards are and to raise your standards after you get out of relationships with abusive people. And then you have to have the confidence to express those standards, either by directly saying certain things or most importantly, through your actions. So that's what I wanna talk about now. I'm gonna talk about some very basic texting things that can come up. Some of these could be things that come up like on the first date or before even making plans for that first date. And some of these might be things that kind of come up in the first couple weeks or even a month of dating someone new. So I have a few categories here. And the first category is just too sexual, too soon. You just start chatting with this person online and, or maybe you met them out and you gave them your digit, they're texting you or something, and it just goes from like zero to sexual, like way too fast. I would immediately block that person. If you're on Tinder or something, just unmatch them. Just stop right there, stop. Because unless that's all you're looking for and you just wanna get laid, that person's already showing you that they have no boundaries around that no boundaries around their sexuality. They just want to jump right in with you just like they want to jump right in with everybody else. I would just end that right there. The second one is when they ghost. Like you barely know this person. They text you a bit and blah, blah. And then they ghost. They disappear for a couple days or a couple weeks. And it's like, I've been thinking about you. And maybe there's an even emoji there. Or I miss you. Or even hey, right? Like that person invested nothing. And they just want to see basically your level of self-respect. That's what that text is. That text is a test of your level of self-respect. If you were talking to this person, maybe even went out a a time or two with the person and then they ghost and then come around with this, again, block, unmatch, no response. You're that person, no response. They ghosted on you. If you give them anything, all you're telling them, I mean, if you respond to them at all, you're basically just telling them you have no respect for yourself. Therefore, they're going to keep treating you like that. The third one is the late night booty call. Hey, what are you doing? It's like 11 o'clock or later at night. Okay, the response to that is, oh, I'm in bed watching Netflix, about to fall asleep. Have a great night and just end it like that. Or maybe you want you want to leave it open for a little conversation to see what the person's doing. So you're just like, I'm in bed in my pajamas watching Netflix about to fall asleep soon. What are you up to? But if the person immediately is trying to make plans with you right then and there, I would just 
quickly end that and say, I'm about to fall asleep. They didn't hear you. They weren't listening to your boundaries. More than likely, that person just wants a booty call. They just waited to the last minute, at very late at night. They just want to see you right then and there. I would put a red flag on that regardless because somebody who's just texting you that late and they want to see you that late probably isn't going to be someone who's going to want to have a real investment in a connection with you, like a real connection. The fourth one is the scarcity tactic. So this tends to happen when you just meet someone online and maybe you're chatting a little bit or maybe you ran into them outside and you gave them your digits and like then they texted you and basically they're like, oh, like how would we see each other tonight? Because tomorrow I'm going out of town on a trip for a week or two. The scarcity tactic, right? So the response to that is, have a great trip. Hit me up when you get back. Smiley face. You know, do not run and go see that person. I don't care if you have nothing to do that night. If you run and see that person, chances are they're just trying to get you in the sack or they're just the last minute trying to rush you in and then they're gonna leave you hanging while they're going away and stuff. Person who's just getting ready to go on a trip should have a lot of stuff to do, like packing and organization. I know I get really anxious the night before I leave on a trip. So it's not the night to like really create an interesting connection with someone. I would avoid that. I would just be busy and be polite about it. Have a great trip. See you when you get back. Chances are great. When you hear that scarcity tactic, you're never gonna hear from that person again. I've seen that numerous times. And then I give that response, never hear from that person again. The fifth one is the afterthought, the last minute. This could be a person that you just meet and they want to see you that day. I would be busy. I would be busy for a few days. This could also be someone maybe you've seen a time or two or three, and now they get into this habit of what are you doing right now? Or what are you doing in like an hour or two or whatever? And it's like, they're not really making any effort to set a date with you, to put some time aside for you, to make any sort of plan for you. And this probably happens more to women who are dating men. But in this case, basically what the person is telling you is you're an afterthought. They didn't put any effort into it. It's just the last minute. Maybe they're bored or maybe they're horny and they just want to see you. I would be busy. I would just have something else to do. And and maybe see them another time if they're willing to make plans in advance. So I would respond with something not aggressive in any sort of way, but more like, oh, I already have plans tonight. Have a great night. Or I have plans tonight, but let me know if you want to make plans for this weekend. Maybe it's like Tuesday night or Wednesday night. But again, if that person waits around to the last minute, the best response to that is, I already have plans for tonight. And just be very cautious that you're not over-investing. Don't immediately reveal your whole schedule to that person. Be very cautious because this person's lazy. This person's not really investing much. The sixth one is the flaky, the non-committal language. So maybe you're kind of talking about making plans and they're like saying things like, oh, maybe Maybe Wednesday or that could work. There's nothing committal there. It's very flaky. So I would be very direct and explicit. Yes, or it could be. Or Wednesday or not Wednesday because if we don't make plans soon, I'm probably going to have plans, which is fine. And you can hit me up later. We can make plans in the future. But I would get them to clarify that language. It, chances are this is just a sign of a flaky, non-committal person. If the person wants to see you, they're going to make plans. Yes, Wednesday, let's make plans. That would be great. I'm looking forward to it. These are committal language starts like this and it just it looks so simple it looks so basic but in in this non-committal language the person's basically telling you they don't have respect for you because they're not really 
willing to make a committed plan to you. So if you want to have a committed relationship, that's probably not the right start. That's probably not the right person. And then the bottom line is the seventh one, when they don't value your time, they can express this in different ways. Like maybe, maybe you make plans and then at the last minute, we're going to meet at seven o'clock for a cafe at this place, whatever. And then maybe you've made plans in advance and then it's not long before then that they text you and they're like, hey, I'm running like 30 minutes late. My response to that would be, no worries, but I already have plans for afterwards, so maybe another day. Now, why am I responding then with flaky language? Didn't I just say that's not a good thing? Yes, but here's the thing. You don't know if you want to see this person again because they're already showing you the sign that they don't really respect your time. The fact that now at the very last minute, they want to make this change of half an hour later and everything. You've set up your time and you've budgeted your time and you could have done that one more errand or that one more task, but because we're going to be diligent and be there on time for this person. So I would leave it open like that and wait to see their reply. Okay. And be very cautious to see Does the person respect the fact that you respect your time or do they not respect? Do they have a negative reaction to you expressing a standard about your value of your time? In that case, I would be done with that. I would not make plans again if they start coming back with a lot of excuses or why you're so strict or, oh, this is a great one. I heard this one. Well, I did you a favor instead of leaving you waiting at the cafe for half an hour. I'm thinking, baby, I ain't going to sit around waiting for you. If a person is 15 minutes late you go to meet someone you're they're 15 minutes late there's no explanation up and leave so one of the mistakes i made once was i sat down and ordered something to drink i would always meet for coffee on the first date it's just a lot safer and always order your coffee in a to-go cup because if that 15 minute mark hits there and this is my standard maybe your standard's 20 minutes or maybe you have a bit of a different standard around that for me it's 15 minutes it's date one if you couldn't be on your best example on date one you had one chance and you blow it, then I'm out because that's going to be a pattern. It's like, oh, they make it out to minimize it and it's not such a big deal and it's only 15 minutes or it's only 30 minutes, but no, because I've been in relationships like that before where it starts like that and then it just escalates and then it's two hours late, a few months into the relationship. No. For me, 15 minutes, I'm out. The person who's like, oh, I did you a favor of letting you know that I was going to be 30 minutes late instead of making you sit again, that person is telling you they have no respect for your time. I would have nothing to do with that. And then, oh, I hate this one. We're like, okay, you made plans. You're on your way. You're walking there. You're driving there whatever. And your phone rings or it texts and it's the person. And they're like, on my way, you? And you're like, yeah. I'm like two blocks away because we said we would meet at seven, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just leaving uh, work right now. I'll be there in five minutes. Mm, that that's already sitting poorly with me. And then if I get to that place and then it's like they're still not there and maybe they text again, they're like, oh, lots of traffic, sorry. Meanwhile, from the beginning, that person told you, oh, it's no problem, it's only like five minutes from where they work and blah, blah, blah. No, no, none of these are good signs. Again, I would order something in a to-go cup if you have already ordered it and just be out of there at that 15-minute mark. Don't wait any longer. That person keeps jerking you around with the time and everything I would just be like well sorry I gotta go 
and I would leave because what's happening is this is how the people show you in very subtle ways that they don't respect you from very, very early on. We're not looking for big signs of narcissists and psychopaths and getting all wrapped up in all of that. That's something to keep in mind as you go along to make sure you don't get involved with someone like that from the very beginning, that basic parameter of respect. So here are the bottom line points that I want to make. One is that your standards are your boundaries. You express those through your words and most importantly, through your actions. You express how much you value yourself. Your self-worth shines through your standards or it does not. So if you're not showing your self-worth through your standards, other people are gonna keep disrespecting you. The second one is walk away. Be willing to walk away. Don't get so excited about this person. Maybe they're really hot. Maybe they're really interesting. Maybe they're really intelligent, whatever. Don't be so enamored with whatever that is that you aren't willing to walk away from the very beginning when you see any of these signs. Don't invest more than they do. The person who's like texting you and they're not being really committal in their language and they're like maybe we'll have a beer sometime. Like I would not be like okay how about Thursday at 8? Like the person is not initiating. They're not showing you that initiative. I would literally just walk away and don't drop your plans to accommodate them. Maybe you have plans with your friends or you're planning on getting some work done or you're going to do some project around the house. It was really important to you. And then this person's like, oh, hey, how about this? You're busy. How about another time? Tuesday at eight o'clock and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. I already have plans. But how about Thursday at seven and see if that works for them? Or how about Sunday at two? Can You can come back with another suggestion, but don't over commit beyond with what they're giving you, what they're offering you, and don't drop all of your plans to go rush out with someone else. Express your boundaries assertively, so not aggressively. Like You don't want to be aggressive and angry, and you don't want to be passive either. Assertion, I mentioned in a few videos ago that I heard Brennan Burchard say, assertion is owning your reality. So when you express your boundaries and your standards, own your reality. I'm sorry, that's not going to work for me, and see how they respond and you don't need to get aggressive. If the person is just coming back with a lot of excuses and you're like, I don't like where this is going at all, and you've just barely met this person or maybe you haven't even met for date one yet, you don't owe them anything. I would just block them and be done with that because that person is showing you they don't respect you. And any time that a person expresses negatively a reaction to your setting your standards of how you value your time and your energy, be done, like just be done. Even if you haven't even met them in person, and you're like trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, well, it is just texting and all. Things could get confused or maybe not expressed or conveyed in the right way. No, when a person is not like, okay, and understanding, you know, like, okay, if it, it happens sometimes. People get caught in traffic and things like that. But if they're going to be 30 minutes late, a person who respects you and you're like, I'm sorry, I have plans afterward, maybe another time. They're like, I am so sorry. Let me make it up to you. How about on Friday at eight? I promise you I'm going to get there early. I'm going to get a table for us and I'm going to order the bottled wine that you like or I'm going to blah, blah, blah that I know you like. That person is respecting your time. That person is honoring your time. The person who comes back around with four or five different excuses Mm -mm. be done with that and most importantly put you first because when you show people that you value you when you show people that you know what you're worth they see that they're gonna know that you value you and they're gonna either 
value you as well and respect you as well or they are not. So that's the bottom line that I have for you guys. Those of you who are getting back out there, starting to date again, some of these things can be applied to new friendships as well. But predominantly this applies to new dating scenarios. I'm in the trenches with you. I'm not sitting on some kind of pedestal somewhere. All of this stuff I'm learning firsthand through life experiences. And the reality is if you want to meet people, online dating is going to be full of narcissists and in all sorts of personality disordered people, of course, like the vast majority are probably going to be those types. But don't don't discount the fact that there could be a gem in the haystack there. There could definitely be a gem in the haystack. And online dating, I've discovered, can actually be a great way to test your standards, to test your intuition, and to test you expressing and owning your standards of respect. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you see from a new perspective so you can take new action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough, you matter, and you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at www.innerintegration.com where you'll get a free three-part video course when you enter your name and email on the homepage. Get loads of more free content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.